Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Charlie. So welcome to Bold Becoming. Today I'm joined with Charlie Carden. She is coming on today to talk about her journey and her identity loss that began when she was a little girl and was sexually abused and a whole bunch of other things happened. And then, of course, results in in her story that we're going to hear today. So um, welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you. And um, for people who just are meeting you for the first time, would you just share a little bit about who you are and what you're up to? Sure. So uh, I, my whole story is from, um, you know, I spent the first 35 years of my life being abused. And when I finally decided that I was not going to have that in my life anymore is when I had my son, uh, my older son, who's almost 16 now. And it was an incredible transformation for me. It was a stopping point of having that in my life. And it was the love for him that finally got me to love myself and realize that there's a whole lot more to this world than the pain and suffering that I had endured for most of my life. And Yeah, so it kind of started a a real personal development journey for me and started my business in 2016 because I feel that anytime you've gone through something significant and suffering has been involved, once you've gotten on the other side of that and you've healed and you have overcome that, that you have a responsibility to put your hand down and help others through Mm -hmm. that journey as well. So yes, when I started my business, it was just, I was reaching out to women all over the world and trying to just help them on their journey, see where they were at. And um, it's just been this really organic kind of just healing journey for me, for, for these women. And yeah, it's just, it's been an amazing journey. So we're going to get into your story in a minute, but let me just point out one thing that I want people to hear. And and you can tell me if this isn't true or not, because you just said it's been a healing journey for me as you're helping these other women. So is it not true that we don't have to have arrived before we can start helping others that we just have to be a a few steps ahead of them? Absolutely. 100%. 
it's, because uh, so many people hold back because they're like, well, I'm not ready to help anybody because I'm not totally together yet. And I've been like that for years too. It's like, right. well, who, and my son is like, who would want to listen to you, mom? You know, you're not, <laughs> you're not all that yet. Right. Yeah. And, and, but that's not, that isn't the point. The point is that we're all further ahead than some people and we can turn and back and, and look at the people who are going through what we've gone through because because we have gone through it right. and we are further ahead and therefore we have learned and then we can share our experience. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be that far ahead of somebody else. It can just be, you know, I, I mean, for the women that I have worked with, you know, maybe they just got out of an abusive relationship and they're just trying to settle and like get their bearings and like figure out what their next step is. And, you know, though it can be very powerful to work with women like that because it's such a period of growth and transformation. And we always learn from other people's experiences too, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, they've gone through something or they can teach us something even, and it can be healing for everybody involved. So I think opening yourself to the conversation and providing that kind of sacred space where people can just open, be open and share what they've gone through and be shown compassion that maybe they haven't been able to show themselves in a very long time. Just providing that space can sometimes be enough. Right. We, we don't. And, and, and actually, you know, in coaching, we learn because you and I are both um, certified high performance coaches we learned that we don't, it's not our job to have the answers. Right. It's our job to facilitate people accessing their own agency and their own inner wisdom that is always there. Right. It's just that like, we're, we're trained not to listen to it because it makes it inconvenient for society, right? Absolutely. But it's well, always there. Yeah, I think, you touched on a very good point. I mean, society teaches us not to listen to our inner voice, especially for those who have been abused or experienced any kind of trauma, which pretty much everybody has been through some, some kind of trauma in their life. And we're, we're taught not to listen. You know, we're taught that we are supposed to listen to everybody else and everyone else is supposed to tell us how to live and how to be and how to look a certain way or. And we're supposed know. to raise our hand to be picked and, and, and approved of. Right. Right. Always. And it's a uh, it's a, it's interesting, you know, when you when you start really opening yourself up to, to yourself and loving yourself and understanding that you get to decide your path. Um, it's a totally different experience because you don't have to fall to the whims of what everyone else is telling you that you have to, how you have to live your life. And um, it's super powerful. So, so I, I know that you, I'm gonna, I can't wait to hear your story because I'm sure in your story, at some point you learned how to listen and acknowledge and respect and take action on that. Mm -hmm. And because it's not an automatic, you know, it's something we have to learn, unfortunately. I mean, like kids, they have it automatically, but then it sort of is kind of like overridden 
by these rules of society. And so then as adults, some of us have the opportunity sometimes because we're pushed into it that we have to like really start like whoa things aren't working and i need to really figure out what's true for me and so how so i, I look forward to hearing about that part of your story but let's just jump in and and start and you tell your story however you want to tell it wherever you want to start and i usually interrupt a lot um <laughs> Well, I mean, my story really started, my father was an alcoholic and drug addict. Um, he was heavily involved in the music industry. I started going to bars at a very young age. And as you can imagine, growing up in that kind of environment lent itself very well to people overstepping their boundaries. And, you know, my father was very much about ownership and power and control and, and taught me very young that I was his property and that I was to do anything that he wanted me to do. Um, that and, 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 and this was a family and your mother was there. My mother was there, but, uh, she had also grown up in a environment where she was beaten and abused and she just didn't have she just didn't have the power to help or right. be present or try to intervene. Mm -hmm. And we were taught not to talk about anything as well. And we weren't empowered to have a voice. So it was just kind of like this very, uh, very controlling, very, um, you know, just we were, we had to be silent. Um, my father gave us drugs at a very young age, um, gave us, uh, you know, I think I remember when I was, who's, who's us, my, me and my brother. Oh, okay. Yeah. O older um, or younger brother. He was a year and a half older than me. I remember early as age five, my father giving us a joint to smoke and he always told us, Hey, if you want to do any kind of drugs, please get them from me because I know where they came from. Um, he dealt drugs. So, uh, you know, they were always around and available if we so choose to take part. If, if, um, a if as a five-year-old, you feel like getting high, then, you know, it's right, right. there. I'll, yeah. I'll keep, I'll keep you safe because I know these drugs are safe because, because I exactly. know. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I mean, it's that kind of environment you know, anytime you're involved in alcohol and drugs, you maybe your, your, I guess, morals and values can sometimes go out the window and you probably do more things that than what you should uh, to people that things shouldn't be done to. Uh, my father sexually molested me. Um, he felt very free in touching me at any time. Yeah, I'm not sure if he ever did anything to my brother. I just, I wasn't privy to that. So uh, he physically abused all of us, including my mother regularly. I mean, he threw books at us. He threw anything at us. He would, you know, beat us if he was really upset about something. You know, there was, there was, it was just wasn't a, it wasn't a great environment to, to grow up in. 
So before you go further, let's let's zoom in on identity. Yeah. So were you ever feeling like an independent, innocent child that sort of like thought of what she was going to be when she grew up and felt like she had agency in her life? Or was that like nipped in the bud and you never even had a chance to know who you really were? No, I never knew who I was when I was a child. I was always told how I needed to be, what I needed to be. And I was there as a, as property. And that's all I was. And growing up like that, it was, uh, yeah, I just, I did not have the opportunity to really think about, you know, that I could control my life, that I had a voice that I could think about what I wanted to be or any of that. There was no, there was no room for that. It was survival mode. It was always survival mode. It was, you know, what's going to happen today? What, you know, what is going to happen to me today? Um, how is my father going to show up? Um, you know, what fights are going to happen? What, you know, it was a war zone. It was a war zone. And, and you, you weren't in, in position to prevent it. And your mom wasn't in a position to effectively manage it either. And so what was it like managing it, surviving? What, what as little Charlie, how did you survive that? I think I just, uh, it was a lot of disassociation, to be honest. Right. It was a lot of just checking out and just pretending that everything was okay. Mm -hmm. It was just hardcore survival instincts. You know, it was telling myself whatever I needed to tell myself to get through the next moment so that I didn't lose all hope. What kind of things did you tell yourself? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, there was a lot of negative messages in there for sure. You know, that I, I didn't deserve anything better that, um, this is the life that, you know, I was given and that I, I had to, you know, perform whatever I needed to do to perform, um, to make everybody happy, to keep the peace. And you, I, I lived for the like little moments, like when me and my brother would play together or, you know, or I went to my friend's house or something like that. I lived for those moments. And those were the moments that really got me through because then I had like little glimpses of life is not all bad. And if I can just make it, if I can just make it through you know, maybe there might be something on the other side. If you can just make it. So as a little girl, you thought of, you might be dead. Yeah. I mean, there were definitely times that I didn't know if we would make it. I mean, I thought of suicide often, you know, my brother committed suicide. So I was 13. He was 14 uh, mm. when he committed suicide. Uh, we both were addicted to alcohol at a very young age, 11 and probably even younger, but my brother was a hardcore drug addict by 11, age 11. Mm. And, mm. you know, that really messes uh, me uh, mind. 
under your father's supervision. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, my my brother was selling uh, bottles of alcohol. I mean, we grew up in Florida. Alcohol was easily available. You could go through any drive-through and get as much as you wanted. So uh, my brother was selling alcohol to his friends in middle school. So, uh, you know, it was, but that's what we had been taught. You know, this is the lifestyle that we were taught to live. And it was what was accepted. Um, thankful for me, I never really got into the drugs. I just, I never had any interest that things probably would have worked out a lot differently for me if I had. Uh, I probably would have followed in my brother's footsteps for sure, because it was a very unstable environment. And, you know, there was constant just questioning, why are we here? What, you know, what kind of life is this and why are we being treated this way and all of that. Um, it was just constant questions and no answers, you know, I mean, the answers were you deserve this and this is what you were put here for and you do what I say. So there's this thing called internalized depression where you start to believe what your oppressor is telling you basically in order to not go insane right exactly because exactly. it doesn't make sense that that life should be this bad but life is this bad and so you have to make sense of it somehow right and 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 you're offered this on a platter that you deserve to be treated this way and there's nothing better out there for you right and so therefore, you know, you start to take on that as a natural coping mechanism Absolutely. Because, because otherwise you can't, you, you, I think that people would literally go crazy. Yes. And, and, okay. and it happened to me, I didn't have such severe abuse, but my dad did physically abuse all of us, not my mom, but us, us me and my three brothers. And my mom was ineffective and stopping and it's like, Julie, Julie, don't, no, no, Andy, don't hurt Julie. And then he'd like hit me. And, yeah. and so I did. And then I, and then of course I like took my anger out on, on people at school. And, and then I was a tomboy. And so I had to beat up the boys to let me play in their games. And so basically I took on this, this belief that I was this bad person. Yeah. And then I started hating myself because I would, I was, um, what do you call it? Um, I would, I would betray myself. Yes. I, I stopped, I stopped standing my ground because I got tired of fighting all the time. And then that's when the internalized depression just really flooded in. Absolutely. Because I just, I got tired of trying to make sense of things that didn't make sense, you know, physical abuse, gender discrimination, and I didn't have any power over it but it wasn't going away. And so then I just, it was easier just to start to kind of believe that this is, that, that I'm actually like the cause, that, uh, that I'm a bad person. Not that I deserve to be treated badly, but it's just, it's just this really twisted thing. And I felt so guilty for it for so many years, but then finally I realized, you know, if I hadn't taken on that, that viewpoint, I could have literally gone crazy. Right. Absolutely. 
I mean, this is the story of so many people that have been abused. You know, you have to like get into the mindset of whatever it is that you need to tell yourself to survive. Yeah. That's what you have to do. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you basically just, you know, you don't think you deserve any better and that's at the heart of it. And those are the messages that you've been given and that's what you accept. And you just like, keep going. And, and that's, and that's a, that's an effective coping mechanism to get through a, an environment where you have no exit. Right. Like once, once we're an adult, we can exit, <clears throat> but as a kid, you, you're not, you know? Right. right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it took me a really long time to learn that exit. <laughs> um, like I said, it wasn't until my son was born that I was like, all right, because I was date, I was married to a drug addict and alcoholic, and uh, surprise, surprise, yeah, and um, you know, and it had multiple boyfriends that were very abusive towards me, but yeah, when my son was born, though, I was just like, I'm not gonna raise him like this. He's not gonna be subject to this, and he was he was my catalyst to right. to really you know, make a decision that, uh, all right, there are some things I needed to change in me. I'm not a victim. I refuse to be labeled as a victim. I can make choices now. I can choose to be whatever I want to be. And it was interesting, uh, you know, what you were saying about, you know, really changing that mindset and stuff, because one significant event um, happened that really uh, changed everything for me. And it was an ex-boyfriend who had been physically abusive towards me when I was in high school. And uh, he was on his deathbed overcoming throat cancer and told his wife at that time that he needed to see me before he could die. And ended up like getting through the surgery and then searched me out, found me through a mutual friend and came to see me up in Massachusetts. And he told me, I, I'm not going to live much longer, but I did, I could not die until I told you how sorry I was for how I treated you. And that it wasn't your fault. And that, I mean, I get goosebumps even thinking about it now because tears. <laughs> yeah, because it was the first time in my life that somebody had told me that it wasn't my fault. All the way up until that time, like I thought there's something wrong with me. I just, you know, these people, like this is just how I, you know, how things are supposed to be. Like this is how I'm just how I'm gonna be treated and you know this is, this is it. This is all I got. And then, so how old, how old were you at that this point? This was, this was when I was 36. And so this was definitely in the time where the words domestic violence were part of the lexicon, right? I right. mean, because, because like a long time ago, domestic violence was just like, that's life. And then later it got separated and it's like, you know, that's life, that's, that's life, but it's not how it should be. And so mm -hmm. then people have this, this word, this container, and then they can start to deal with it. So by then you probably knew the word domestic violence. Yeah, Did of you? course. Yeah. But, but it, but it didn't, you still 
See, the thing is, is that when we learn as a young child that we don't deserve and that we're bad, just because we're grown up, that stuff doesn't just go away. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Even it doesn't. when we try really hard to right. make it go away, it's hard. Yeah. And so here you were like 36 and you still, it, it, it took this person to actually connect the dots for you. Yeah. Yeah. To sort of liberate. And it it, it kind of started, it kind of started this like spiral for me because um, I ended up reaching out to many other ex-boyfriends and finding out the same thing that they were going through, whatever they were going through, you know, some had been beaten by their own fathers and, and stuff like that. And they were like, you know, I'm really sorry. And they all said the same thing. And I was just like, oh my gosh, it was like this well opened up inside of me of self-love because I had been holding myself accountable for bringing these people into my life and for how I was treated. Even my father, like how he treated me, I felt like it was my responsibility. My mother told me it was my fault, you know, and those are the messages that I had been given my whole life. And now all of a sudden I knew it wasn't my fault. And I'm like, holy crap, like, all right. Let's change everything now. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was just a, a really critical point for me, and ch it changed everything. It changed everything. And so, like in these domestic violence relationships, one of the hallmarks is the the blaming the the blaming yeah. the victim. Right. Yeah. Gaslighting. It's all gaslighting. So, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, you made me hit you because you did whatever. And it's not true. Like you have to have self-control and you have to be able to be adult enough to work things out without feeling like violence is the only way. Yeah. Um, it's like, nobody. we like, they, they, they want to put you on a pedestal of perfection, which nobody is there. Right. And, and therefore it's always your fault because you're not perfect, right. but it's, they're, they're like, it's, it's an unreality, but right. it fit, it fits their narrative. And then, and then they bring you into like believing this narrative, like, right. well, I, I wasn't perfect enough and the house wasn't clean enough and I wasn't pretty enough. And, you know, and if only and, and the thing is, that's not how life is. Life isn't about if only life is, it's this way and it's this way. And it's, you know, there's, there is no perfection. There no. is no, the pedestal doesn't exist. It's, no. it's the emperor with no clothes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I tried so hard. I mean, that is another thing with people that have overcome significant trauma is we think everything needs to be perfect. Mm -hmm. I call myself a recovering perfectionist, you know, because it's, that's just all part of it. You had to keep things in a certain way. You had to be a certain way so that you weren't hit or abused or you know, cheated on actually traumatized or cheated on or whatever it is whatever the thing is that they would use or, or they gotta they gotta control. drink one more time because exactly. you, you didn't do what you know you're part of the deal yeah absolutely
So you, what was it like when your brother committed or uh, died from suicide? Is that the right way to say it now? Died um, from suicide? Yeah, well, it was, it was absolutely horrific. I mean, he was my only source of comfort in that mm. house. Mm. And when he chose to take his own life, it was absolutely devastating for me because I had no buddy and nobody. And then I was left to my own, you know, thoughts, <laughs> like what was really going on. My mom totally checked out, uh, after that happened. Um, I mean, if she wasn't checked out before she was really checked out after that happened and I felt more alone than I had ever felt. I mean, I went into a very serious depression for years. I was, supposed to be in high school, but I did not attend high school very often, but I didn't have anybody telling me to go to school either. So, uh, you know, a lot of days I would just stay home and sleep all day or, you know, do whatever, walk around the neighborhood or go to the river or whatever it was that I felt like doing that day. But it most certainly wasn't anything that a normal kid should be doing during their high school years. So, so he was kind of your reality check. Yeah. Because you could, you could, you could soundboard off of each other that, yes, this is really happening. Well, he, so I have so many memories of us huddling together in a closet, waiting for things to calm down outside. I mean, war, it literally was a war zone. Like, he came home drunk again. What's he going to do to mom? We better go hide. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was a horrific environment to grow up in for sure. And, and were the police ever involved? No, nobody ever called the police back then. So this was back in what era? If you don't this mind. Was, I was born in 1970. So, okay. you know, 70s, I mean, early 80s, yeah. 70s, 80s, like child child abuse wasn't even, you know, teachers didn't yeah. like intervene. Nobody cared. Well, I don't know that they didn't care, but they never did anything. It was mind Things, your own business. Yeah. What goes on in that house, we are it's none of our business. And you know, so that I mean, yeah. I mean, we had a sheriff that lived across the street from us. <laughs> he never did anything. He never came knocking when the yelling was happening or screaming or whatever. That never happened. Were there weapons involved? Um, no, there were no. I mean, I not that I ever saw. Mm -hmm. um, my dad certainly had a shotgun, um, but he honestly only tried to use that against himself a few times, not against any of us. Mm -hmm. um, there were multiple times that he tried to commit suicide and tried to shoot himself. What so, do you mean tried? He missed he, or he, he decided missed. not to? He met, I, who knows? I don't know. It didn't work. He did, he did shoot, but he didn't kill himself. Exactly. So right. there was like, there was complete lethality potential in your house. Oh, for sure. 
for sure. Always, always. I mean, my dad ended up leaving the house when we were, I was nine. He uh, found a girlfriend and ended up taking off with her. But then things were worse for me because whenever we went to be with him, like it was usually just in bars. And at that point, you know, I mean, I was a developing young woman and became an object uh, for his friends to do like touch or do whatever they wanted. Um, I was raped by my dad's best friend at age 14. Mm. And that was after uh, he told him it was okay. And I'm not sure if he, you know, what transactions occurred there. Um, and once I started getting older, like after my brother had died and I didn't have that layer of protection because my brother was always watching. Um, but once, you know, once I got to that age, like at age 14, my brother was already gone. So my dad, I would go to the bars with him and he would invite guys back to the van, to his van and encourage them to touch me wherever they wanted to touch me. And, um, they would pay him to do that. So he, he was your pimp. He was my pimp. He was my pimp. And he always told me that, um, you know, when I would say something like, no, dad, you know, like, I don't want to do that or whatever. And he's like, if this is your responsibility, this is, you know, you, you, this is what you're supposed to do as a woman is be subservient to men. Um, so I did it and I didn't want him to be mad at me and I idolized him and I wanted to do whatever it was he wanted me to do so that I would gain his approval. That's the thing about humans is that there is this connection to our parents mm -hmm. that we are forever seeking their approval, no matter what atrocities they may have committed against us. Absolutely. It's, it's very, I, I learned that with this woman, this 18 year old woman who had, anyways, a long story, but on my social work job, and she just she just was still committed to a relationship with her, her with her father well, well her, her parents and it's it doesn't you know we like to think that it doesn't make sense but it's just it that's life you know isn't it yeah. it's, it's just very very um and so that's also one of the reasons that it's hard to to recalibrate our thinking once we are away and have a chance, once we have our freedom and independence from that person, it's it just, it's not automatic that we recalibrate how we think because no. there's, there's this bio, I don't know if it's biological, but there's this need for people to strive to get what they need the relationship, like I'm writing up an interview right now for my book about this guy who, you know, was going into pro basketball because he wanted 
a better relation. He wanted a relationship with his father, like his like like his cousin had. And then finally he realized, you know, I'm going into basketball for the wrong thing. I'm not going to get what I want from this guy, from my dad. It's not going to be like my cousin has it. And now I need to see what, what I want. But right. this, this, this need for, you know, to, so, you know, for you to say that after what you just said, and then you say, I idolized my dad is like, people are, people are like scratching their head. Yeah. So what did, let's go into that just a little bit more, what that looked like, idolizing your dad while you knew that what, what he was asking you to do was wrong, right? I mean, maybe yeah. when you were a little girl, you didn't know it was wrong, but by age 14, you knew it was wrong. Yeah, well, I honestly, I think it's, it can be very uh, similar to what some of the people went through, like in concentration camps, you know? you like where people just do whatever it is they have to do to survive. Right. And uh, it's very much that mentality. Like it, it was like very deep programming inside of me that told me this is what I'm supposed to be doing. If I want to have approval from my father to be accepted by my father, I had to do whatever it was that he was asking me to do. And approval of your father meant staying alive. Exactly. Exactly. Or I would be abused or, you know, he would get really mad at me and I couldn't like, that was hard. That was too hard for me to even consider. Um, I wanted to be the good girl. I wanted to, you know, perform and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy. It was definitely crazy. And it wasn't really until, I don't know how old I was. I was in my twenties when I went out to, he was, he had moved out to Oregon and I, I went out to see him. And it really wasn't until that trip that that was broken. Like that need for approval, that strong it was like the veil was finally lifted. Um, what, what happened? Well, I, I went out to visit him. He was living in a crack house. Um, so it was, you know, it was just a lot of drug addicts that lived in the house. He had married a prostitute and they had a child. And I actually went out there to meet my little sister who was a month old at the time. And then my dad, of course, took me to the bars because he would always played music and introduced me to his girlfriend. Um, so oh, had... oh, so your dad was a musician and that's why he was always at the bars? Yes. Yeah, he was a musician. Oh, so he was at the bars as a musician. He brought his daughter because, you know, right. just that's where that's where he basically lived. Exactly. Work life. Right. All right. It wasn't that he brought you out drinking with him per se. No, no. He was just always at bars because he was always playing music. Okay. Um, he was actually an extremely talented musician. You know, he opened for some pretty big bands and stuff like that. He had a really good band himself. He was actually a super brilliant guy. Just, uh, 
you know, didn't have his heart in the right place, obviously. And then of course that the, the music lifestyle is very easy to be heavily into drugs and alcohol. Absolutely. For sure. It's sort of like they go hand in hand for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. I mean, not everybody has to do it like that, but it is very quite, a, quite available. Yes. Yeah. And, and acceptable. Yeah, exactly. So um, you went to Oregon, family ties. You wanted to see your little sister, meet your little right. sister. And, and, and he brings you to the bar where he's playing. Yeah. So he has his wife at home that just had the baby and then introduces me to his girlfriend that he has on the side oh. um, at the bar. And it was just like something clicked. I was just like, oh, okay. I get it now. Like all he does is use people like that's all he's ever done that's all he's ever been and i'm good like i don't need this in my life anymore i'm really good and i remember going back and telling his wife that i had met his girlfriend and that he was like having this relationship with this woman and whatever and she was like oh well i'm not down for that i'm gonna leave him and whatever. And my father said to me, all you've ever tried to do is ruin my life. <laughs> and I was just like, dude, seriously, like grow up. <laughs> all I've ever tried to do is ruin <laughs> your life. Like really. I speak all up one, I speak up one time in my entire life. And that's all you've ever heard. Yeah. And it, it just, it was just like a huge light bulb went off. I was just like, wow, like what the heck? Like I just, you know, and releasing that and releasing that whole connection and just leaving him behind and never, ever wanting to have a relationship with him again was just monumental in my life. Um, now I still searched out and found men who would treat me the same way. Um, and, and, and let, me do, and, you, and let me, but yeah, let me point this out is that people, people like, they like to think that, that women like this kind of stuff and that they're looking for it. The thing is, is it's not, and that, but this is what's familiar, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not that that's what we're seeking out. It's just that that's what we know how to find. Right. And, and even like the men who aren't like that can be, you can feel kind of uncomfortable around them because you don't know what's up. You don't know right. how it works. Exactly. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I remember a therapist, one of my therapists, and I have been in and out of therapy. I've done a million different things to try and heal the trauma in my body. I've done cranial sacral therapy, massage therapy, sound healing, like a million different things to get me to where I am today. But I remember a therapist said to me once, if you have a really strong attraction to somebody, you need to run the other direction. Because that was just, it was like your vibration. It, yeah. it was my vibration at that time. I was sending out a message 
hey, I'm looking for somebody to treat me the way that I feel I need to be treated. The way I know, I know how to be treated. Right, right. And I didn't know any better. And that's what I, that's what I attracted. That's what I was attracted to. And I, you know, I had to change that vibration. Yeah. Wow. So what a, what a gift it was that he had that girlfriend on the side, huh? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So you had, you had that with, so you had that breakthrough and then, but it doesn't, you don't automatically like get everything together. Like you said, and you went through, you know, you sought out help and you, you know, you, but you knew there was something else that you needed by then. Yeah. That's, that was sort of like the line in the sand where you realize, wait, I gotta, I gotta do things differently. Well, that was really my, the breaking of the bond with my father. And, um, you know, it was just something that needed to happen so that I could open, you know, a different level of, of thinking about myself and, you know. um, So let's, let's jump into, so, so as a little girl, you never like sort of knew who you were independent of this abuse. So you never had your own sense of autonomy. And, and so then when you were 20, you had, you stepped into a new life of having your autonomy. So what, so what was the um, identity shift there? What did kind of, what were you, who were you before and who were you at 20 once you let go of that bond that need for that Um, bond well my mom ended up marrying this uh man who I consider my only father and he was really nice to me and was very successful and saw potential in me Mm -hmm. um and so I ended up like starting college and going to college and um, Wait, this is after you're 20 or before? This was, well, I was 19 when I started college. Okay, so so you were, were you still living with your mom or your? Yeah, well, I moved in with her and her husband, who is my father. And uh, yeah, but it was really like when I moved in with them and you know, it was a different lifestyle and we kind of, my mom kind of left everything behind that, you know, that she had been, you know, because she had had multiple boyfriends that were abusive after my father left her and uh, also sexually molested me, etc. And, but then when she met this guy, all that changed. Like he was a good stand-up guy and was very successful. And, um, you know, and so we kind of left that life behind. However, I had not changed my internal dialogue to not desire men who would take advantage of me. So hence, you know, multiple boyfriends that also were not very nice to me, et cetera. 
but it, yeah, I mean, it really wasn't until I had my son that I finally left that abuse behind. So before we get to there, and I know we got to wrap it up, but um, I'm just, I'm just fascinated at the progression of identity shifting. Mm -hmm. So you, you were still being abused by any old man who, who felt like it until that new husband came into your mom's life. It sounds like yeah, that, that was, that was, you, you saw your mom was different. She was, and then, and then you had a chance. Well, he treated you differently. And so then you realized, Oh, maybe I'm not really this person that I've been trained to think. Yeah. And act like, yeah. and, and then that was like, maybe part of it, how you could have even told your your father's wife what was going on because right. before then maybe you would have never even like disclosed exactly yep absolutely absolutely so but, this sort of but that, yeah definitely that shift in identity um you know once I like started college and then I got a career and you know, I was always very successful, high performer um, at all of the jobs that I had. But again, that was probably power and control for me, you know, because I could control that and I could control how well that I performed. And, um, you know, a lot of corporate executives, they're very good at performing because they like to gain that approval. Um, <laughs> so I was still stuck in this corporate grind, getting the approval, being very successful, you know, performing very well for, uh, you know, all of my managers and higher level executives. Um, because, and being physically abused at home. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it is really interesting when you talk about identity because I was this picture perfect corporate badass, you know, well, while at my personal life was just a freaking disaster. And cause I just hadn't figured that out. I hadn't figured out like the stuff I hadn't really healed. I hadn't. What did you need to figure out? I needed to figure out that I, that, you know, I could have it all. <laughs> I needed to figure out that I, there was a yet another level to my own personal development and there could be peace and there could be happiness and that I could bring people into my life that loved me and respected me and honored me in ways that were more aligned to who I re really was. In ways um, that you've never had. Right. But you knew existed because exactly. out in the world, other people seem to have something different. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I continued to, you know, have mentors and um, hired coaches and, you know, I, I just, there's, I just, it's always, it's just a learning journey, all of it, you know, it's learning and unlearning. <laughs> right. Right. As you learn, you unlearn. Right. 
Yeah. You drop, like, you drop uh, beliefs that no longer serve you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just like, I just don't associate with that anymore. I'm good. I'm good. So you eventually have a, a, a child and, and so now you, I just want to fill in because I know when I'm writing up this story for my book, I'm also going to need to answer this question. So you had said you were uh, an alcohol addict. And so how long did that last for? And then did you, yeah, how long did that last for? And how did that work out? Um, I pretty much, after I graduated high school, I wasn't really heavy into alcohol anymore. But I was definitely addicted for years there. Okay, yeah. so it's sort of, that wasn't like a huge thing. You sort of just let that go? Yeah, I just let that go. Because it didn't make me feel good. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I definitely, like in my 20s and stuff, had nights where, you know, we drink or whatever. But it wasn't an addiction or anything mm -hmm. like that. Okay. So then you... So your the relationship when you have your child or that gave you your child, was that a domestic violence relationship? Yes. Yeah. He was a drug addict and alcoholic. Okay. I think you said um, that. And so then how did that, how did you, so you basically, so in, in, in high performance, we teach people to raise necessity to like really mm. hone in on something that you need to be better for. Yeah. And so that, that's what happened with your son. Yep. How did it play out? Because it's sort of hard to, you know, leave relationships, isn't it? Especially when you have a kid. Yeah. Well, um, or did he I, leave you? I suspected he had told me that like he didn't have these addictions anymore, like that he had had it oh, yeah. when he was whatever. And like something, my intuition was telling me that something was going on. Um, so I actually made him take a drug test and it showed cocaine and it showed weed on the drug test. And I was like, I'm done. Like it only took one time that one drug, like after my, my intuition kind of went up and like, that happened and I made him take this drug test and I was like, okay, I'm done now. You're out. You're out of here. And, uh, your son was already born or, or yeah, not born he yet? Born. He was a little less than a year old. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, uh, I was, I was all done with that. I, that was, that was it. I, I kicked him out actually he was physically removed from the house because he when i told him that he had to leave he took a baseball bat and took it to every glass thing in the house so he was uh physically removed from the house by the police uh, and, and then, he had he and he had still been physically abusive to you throughout this all of this correct okay. yeah yeah. So you knew that he was dangerous. I knew that he was that dangerous. It wasn't um, any, any big had, surprise that he yeah. wrecked everything in the house. He actually had sent me texts saying that he was going to kill me, oh. um, which was good for me because I, that's what I used when I went to the, the courthouse to get a restraining order against him. So 
he made it really easy for me because he had, I had these texts and he had destroyed the house. So it like made, you kind of add up one plus one definitely equals five in that case exactly um and then i was able to hire a really good lawyer and um, get a lot of conditions in place on how you know he was granted supervised visitation and he had to have drug and alcohol tests before he could see my son and that ended up being too hard for him to maintain so he just never he just never wanted he to be hurt. withered out. He withered out, which was fine. Right. My son didn't need that in his life. No. Nope. And neither did I. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and so, oh my God. So that's such a, because this is another thing that people don't understand about domestic violence is people say you're stupid to stay in the relationship and actually those kind of relationships, you can be in more lethal danger when you leave than yeah, when absolutely. you stay. Absolutely. And and people don't understand that. And so it, it just isn't quite as black and white as people on the outside say, like, well, why, why, why don't you just? Right. Um, I and tell so, people all the time, don't ask that question. Why don't you just leave? Instead, ask, you let me know when you need help. Right. That's the right question because it only a woman can know in a situation like that when it is safe to leave. Mm -hmm. And and restraining orders don't oh, do prevent crap. they do not prevent people <laughs> from committing crimes they because do not. people know that they're committing a crime and a piece of paper isn't what's going to stop them. It no. does deter some people but yes. it does not prevent it's right. it's not a silver bullet by any means and in fact it can escalate the problem right right absolutely absolutely there there are just this is a very messy subject and there are no simple solutions no. and you know when i was a social worker uh, i stopped when i was like you know it's been 22 years now or something but before I stopped, and, and people never wanted to ask those questions because it was so messy. Because mm -hmm. like you couldn't just tell the woman to leave, and and like things would happen, and and so people wouldn't even ask the question. Right. And then and then when I was a social worker, so it was like in the end of the '90s is when emergency rooms started having a law, at least in California that they had to ask, are you physically in danger from anybody? But before right. that, they wouldn't bother to ask because it was it would turn into this huge, long, complex intervention that they needed to do that they didn't have time to do. There weren't resources of like, like there weren't places you could just tell the woman, you know, here's a safe house you can go to because there's limited beds. It was just like, right. It was so different. And fortunately, things are different now, except that the I believe probably the rate of domestic violence hasn't really changed. Or no, it's it, gotten worse. It's gotten worse. Why has it gotten worse? Um, because exponentially, when people are abused, they grow up and abuse. And so more and more and yes. more and more 
and because I know in sexual abuse, that's that's what I went to this training. And it's like they are among us because for each like person who sexually abuses a child, a certain percentage of those child are going to grow up and do the same because right. it's just that's the way it works. And so it's not that we're more aware of abuse now is it actually is growing exponentially yes. and, un and unfortunately society is not doing very much at all to address these problems of domestic violence child sexual abuse child physical abuse yeah I mean, the, people the, still don't want to talk about it they want to put it in a closet and pretend it doesn't happen and pretend that you're a defective person right. and, and should be able to, and, and therefore that's why the problem isn't solved instead of this is a huge, messy societal thing. Yeah. I remember um, when I was a social worker, I, I, I don't remember how it was, but I learned somewhere that in China, so this was like way back in the 90s, that in China, if there's domestic violence, and so don't quote me, I just remember, I don't remember where, but it just put a light bulb in my head that in China, like if you have domestic violence, the guy can't just like leave and go on and start another family and start more domestic violence, that they had these structures to actually like try to solve the problem in the family because it's the, the solution isn't all about just leaving the relationship because mm. you carry the problem with you and then you like it happens other elsewhere and right. i'm not saying that a person shouldn't really leave the relationship because our society is not set up with the systems to actually resolve these these problems and and so yeah you know, well i mean you know I, I recently read a book called The Wounding and Healing of Men. It was a really fabulous book. We have so many people walking around this planet that are wounded. Right. It is only the wounded that hurt other people. You know, they have their own stuff, their own, own unresolved stuff. stuff people that they have people not aren't from. born doing this kind of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I learned. I was on the sexual assault response team in the emergency room for my second job because I was a single mom and I had to like work two jobs. Anyway, and I would, I would be, I would accompany the survivors, mostly women, and throughout the whole process of the evidence collection and the, you know, getting medically treated. But to start off the process, the police would be there and they would take blow by blow account of what happened to determine whether a crime had been committed and therefore they were going to pay for forensic evidence collection of the rape. And I, I would hear these stories and they were so, and all the graphic details. And, and at one point I realized, you know what, these people who are doing this, they have had to have something go terribly wrong in their life because oh, people sure. aren't born to do these things and then i then i started to have compassion i'm not i'm not condoning i'm not saying they're not responsible but i started to be able to have compassion because these people this is not like if you have like a loving safe family I'm not saying that there aren't sometimes some like real like 
wires crossed in people. But in general, this is not what people grow up to do. Right. That there Absolutely. are circumstances. 100%. And they're still responsible for what they do. And there's there's reason have, for it. They have to do the same thing that you and I did. They have to be right. committed right. to right. healing and overcoming that trauma. Right. And, you know, sometimes people just aren't given that opportunity or they don't want that opportunity. I mean, people be, can become very attached to their trauma. Yeah. And they like the power and control. And, you know, they're addicted to their ego or whatever it is. And that's fine. They can be how they're going to be. They're just not going to be with me. Yeah, but changing changing personal behavior is it's an inside job. You have to decide yeah. you're going to do it. And yeah. even when you decide, it's not that easy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's um let's let's uh, I mean, I could go on talking about this forever. <laughs> but um let's wrap it up. Is there any part of your story that, that you left out that you think we need? Um, I don't think so. I think I, we pretty much covered a lot of ground there. Good. <laughs> so to reach this incredible transformation that you described in the beginning of what you're doing now, what are, what are some of your takeaways for people who might be watching somebody and feel helpless while somebody is being uh, abused or somebody who is being abused, what are some, you know, a few takeaways you'd like to leave them with? Well, definitely what I said about just being there to help when they're ready right. um, is critical because there just aren't enough support systems in place for women in these situations. And just telling them that I'm here when you need me is everything, is everything. The other thing is, uh, I forgot your second question. So, so if you're in the situation yourself, if you're in the situation yourself, uh, make a plan, uh, whatever you need to do to literally just write some, maybe you can't write it down because you don't want your abuser to find it. Um, maybe it's something you stick in a notebook that you stick under a tree, like in the park or something like that. Um, somewhere obviously that they can't find it, but just start putting a plan together, even if it's just in your head, but it's, these are the things that need to be in place so that I can start moving in the direction of getting myself out of this situation. And what are some of those things, those basic things? Um, maybe start putting some money aside that can cover a couple nights hotel, get a uh, prepaid cell phone and stash that somewhere so that you can make a call um, when you're out. Um, figure out a schedule on when you're, you might be able to break free. Are there, is there an opportunity to create another bank account um, somewhere um, that you'll be able to use in the future without them being able to track it? Who are the people that are there for you that can offer you support if you decide that you're ready to go? You know, lean on those people. What is the plans for your pets? What are the plans for your kids? Is there somebody that can take your kids that you where your, your spouse or significant other does not know where they are 
because that's a major concern too. I mean, sometimes women stay because they're afraid the kids are going to be injured as well. And you don't want a situation where, you know, they get them accused of kidnapping or something like that. So it's a, it's a, it can be very complicated, um, but it, it just all starts with a plan. Like if I was to get out of this situation, what are the first things that I need to do? You know, when do I want to do this? When is going to be the best time and start working towards that? And that's it. Nice. Well, you've just spelled out why it's so complicated Yeah. to, to leave. It's not just like, I'm just going to walk out the door. No. Especially, like I said, especially women, when you have kids, especially when you have kids, um, you know, like I said, women have an intuition. They have survived this whole time because they knew exactly what they needed to do to keep everybody alive. So it's not, it's not a simple, I can just walk away. It's a, what are the 10,000 things that need to happen? in order for everybody to still be alive when I walk away. So what from your childhood survival, because that's exactly what you're doing as, as a child, have you, how did, how did that help you break out of your domestic violence relationships? I think just really connecting to the intuition, like knowing when I was safe, you know, knowing, you know, I think that's it right there. Just being able to connect to that intuition and, and know when the right time was to leave was everything. And I can't say that I was perfect at that. I mean, I did go through a situation where a ex-boyfriend almost killed me when I was trying to leave. I mean, he literally was on top of me with his hands around my neck. I was seconds from death after he brutally beat me. So after he found out you were trying to leave, right. He was punishing you right. for, for leaving. Right. Exactly. Um, and I was literally seconds from death when the police showed up. So uh, it's not easy. It is not an easy decision. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I had calculated that decision. He was supposed to be at work. He, whatever, his own intuition told him that something was amiss and he left work and came after me. So you know, that's, that's, that's the unfortunate reality of these situations. So honestly, compassion is like, for women going through this, compassion is huge. They need it so much from everyone. They don't need judgment. They don't need to be told what to do. They don't need advice. They need compassion. They need love. They need support. And that's everything. Mm -hmm. Wow. What a heavy and beautiful note to end on. <laughs> but I'm really glad that you, you added that, that story about what, you know, how you actually almost lost your life while 
you were following through on your plan to leave and that it is just not, there's nothing automatic and there's nothing cookie cutter about any of this. Each person, it, it's, it's their own, it's just, there's nothing cookie cutter about it. Yeah. And, and that's why I think that's sort of the message that I would like to leave it with is that people in these situations, and it could be men too, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I had a I had a former guy that I, I had a little relationship with and they married somebody else. And then I saw him years later and he was like, I almost committed suicide because she abused me. And I just didn't know what to do. Because yeah. so it's it, it's not and it can it's in same sex relationships. It's everywhere. And the thing is, is that it is so much more complicated than we want to believe. And so the message that I want is to believe and have confidence in the person that they're doing the best they can in that moment. And to, like you say, just keep giving the message that when you're ready, when you need the help, I'm here. Right. Because we cannot push the river on this. People end oh. up dead when, right. when they try to like hurry this stuff up. Right. Absolutely. And they, and they can end up dead because they didn't do it fast enough. There is just, there's, but there is no, they're the one that knows what they need to do and when they're going to do it. And even though we want it to be on a different timeline, that's not how it, that's not how it works. No, it isn't. For sure. And like, let's see. So to end, let's, let's end it on a more hopeful note. Cause I always go, I always go down to like, <laughs> the, you know, you could be dead. So let me let, hand it to you to, to end it on a more hopeful note than that. Yeah. I guess I would just want to say that nothing in your past defines what is possible for your future. And I am a walking living uh, example of that. My life is completely different than anything that I was ever given um, earlier in my life. So, you know, I have my own business and I have freedom and I have amazing friends and beautiful children and, you know, safe, I thought safe perfect. relationships and safe relationships. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that my life is 100% perfect because nobody's ever is, but I have incredible peace and comfort and just, uh, you know, I'm very grounded and centered and doing things that I love and that's everything. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, you know, once you've been through something, laying your hand down and helping somebody else up through it is, I believe, what we're all put here to do. Service. Yeah. You know, having that life of service and, you know, igniting your compassion, knowing that nobody's perfect and that we're all trying to do our best and nobody is without struggle or, you know, their own stuff that they're trying to work through and we all have an opportunity to just be love and 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 be there for each other 
Now that is a hopeful note to end on. <laughs> I knew you could do it. Um, or that you would do it. So this has been so great. We'll find you online, Charlie. Uh, my website is charliecarden.com. So yeah, you can find me there. Um, Fire Sisters Rising uh, is my business. And uh, I do have a book that's published. Um, it's out on Amazon. So you can look up my name, Charlie Carden or Fire Sisters Rising, and you'll find that out on Amazon. What's and the name of your book? It's Overcoming the Impossible to Achieve the Extraordinary. Oh my God. It's a little bit about my story, but it's mostly about all the different kind of mind shifts that I made to leave that life behind. So, wow. um, yeah. So it's, it's a mix of a memoir and a how-to. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a workbook to to help people kind of process through their own stuff so that they can get to their next level. Say the name of it again, please. Overcoming the impossible to achieve the extraordinary. That's a nice promise. Yeah. That is and you're living it. I am. How and in, how incredibly wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much and thanks for joining. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart. Add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one -on -one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.